Thunderbrunt. Blockbusters, the show that treats the final edit of a movie like the script. Today, we're going to do a movie that's precious to all of us. But first, we're going to introduce ourselves. Hi, I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant. My Twitter handle is at Jimmy R. George. And I am Jamie Nash. I am a screenwriter and writer of Save the Cat Rights for TV, now available at Amazon. <laughs> My Twitter handle is at Jamie under, at like I need to say at, right? Jamie underscore Nash. And my parlor handle. No, I don't know. Parlor. Does parlor <laughs> even exist anymore? No. I don't know. With all this, like, you know, downloads Facebook, I was wondering if it would make a, a new turn or something, but What's that's your another WhatsApp, podcast. Jamie? Uh, and I'm Bob Rose. I'm at Thundergrunt Bob. And I am happy to say that today, uh, for October, mm-hmm. we're going to do a classic, which is Ghostbusters, which I feel like is, I think we when we started this show, we talked about like four or five movies that were like the gems that we all, that we, the three of us consider yeah. You know, like the Mount Rushmore of movies. And I think this would be one of them, right, guys? This is on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked yeah. about Galaxy Quest. That's Back to the that's Future. The list. Back to the Future. Raiders yeah. Lost Ark. Raiders Lost Ark. We're hitting Gremlins, this one now. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Right? It, it, I could probably list half of Spielberg's, you know, first 10 movies. Like <laughs> right, right. Dolls, Close Encounters, you know, something. But We'll get to Jaws eventually. Next summer, get, maybe. It'll get redundant. Jurassic We've Park. already... We did in Jurassic Park. We did E.T., right? We did that. No. We no. haven't no. done E.T. Wow. I thought we did. It's we not a Spielberg pod- podcast, Jamie. Come on. Okay. Not that I wouldn't do a Spielberg <laughs> podcast. but Okay. I know we did Raiders, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah but I feel like uh, this, is, this is like Mount Rushmore material for us. Mm-hmm. So before we get into our outline, let's go around the room. This, go around the Zoom. And say what this movie means to all of us, you know, and keep it short. Don't talk yeah. about your, you know, I was I was born a young child. <laughs> I was four when this came out. I yeah. mean, I used to uh, construct before before uh, even the toy line. I used to take like wood in my garage and make like terrible Ecto ones. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I uh, love the cartoon. I'm a huge fan of this. I had the to- all the toys growing up. But this probably stayed. Ghostbusters like was a mainstay of my childhood, probably for like at least seven or eight years of it. So yeah, and I love these movies. Yeah. Um, so I was a kid that loved spooky stuff. Like I like Scooby-Doo. I have a picture of Scooby-Doo behind me. Uh, also, it looks like I, you're I, pointing to your exorcist. Book. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's just behind it. So it's over there. Okay. Ah! Got the cell. You see the cell? Nice. nice. Um, so, uh, you know, I was into Scooby-Doo. I was into I was into like I used to love the the scary episodes of like the Brady Bunch, like when the UFO, the, the Tiki doll, 
or the or the Halloween haunted house episode, you know, anything that mixed in a little scary. But I when I was a kid, I did watch the the filmation Ghostbusters uh show. <laughs> it was a TV show and it was weird. The show would come on on Sundays. I, I can't remember. Let me look up. It says original release was 1975. But I remember it used to come on on Sunday mornings and it was it was almost like a, it was really weird. They used to do strange stuff in my area with shows where it wouldn't come on every Sunday. It was almost like an anthology, like like one week it would be on and then the next week it would be some black and white mom pa kettle movie. And then the next week it would be another black and white movie and then it would be on and then it was always rotating. So whenever I, I remember before church, I used to catch this show and I used to think it was I don't know. It was like everything I wanted in a show. Like I used to like um, Tim Conway and Don Knotts and stuff. They're like the private eyes is one of my favorite movies as a kid. <laughs> I, I love that movie. So go. And, and on the flip side of that, see, I'm turning this into a long story on the flip side. Of that, <laughs> I know I tried to, I my, tried to make mine like 30 seconds. My, <laughs> my, my, my early uh, film, like, it's one of the most important things in my early film stuff was Saturday Night Live. Like I was a child of that generation. So the first R-rated movie I saw was the Blues Brothers. I was huge Dan Aykroyd and, and John Belushi fan. I saw 1941 Spielberg again. Um, so I love Saturday Night Live. So when when this thing came out, you know, I was all in. It like mixed two of my favorite things together. Uh, kind of the spooky comedy, whatever, and Saturday Night Live. And it hit both of those things. However, strangely enough, I remember when it came out, it wasn't like my immediate favorite movie of all time. It, it took me, I almost came back to it a little later. I don't know what I was expecting from it when I first saw it as a kid. Like, I think I was expecting Saturday Night Live, but I really more wanted jokes, maybe more jokes, but I also wanted more spooky. And I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite wrestle the two together. And it took me a few years to realize oh, this wasn't just a comedy. They weren't making fun of the horror stuff and the ghost stuff. It was actually more like Back to the Future or something like that. It took me a little while to, to wrestle my kid brain around what I actually saw. Because I think I was expecting more Tim Conway and Don Knotts and, mm. less, and less of a, a thing. And then it became my favorite movie over time. Or one of my favorite, not my favorite, but one of my favorites, one of my top you know, 10 movies. Um, and one I wanted to emulate and write as a screenwriter for many years to come. So, but honestly, when I first saw it, not that I disliked it, I just always was like, what was it that I was expecting that I didn't get? And uh, do you yeah, think it was because like you weren't, you hadn't been hit with that tone maybe at that yeah. age? Yeah. Well, I, I saw, you know, I, I can't remember, was this prior to Back to the Future or, it's or 84, after? Back to the Future was uh, 85. So. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I'm trying to think of what other movies would have hit me around that time that would have mixed because they're not a ton of movies like this is the strange thing yeah. up to that um, point. No. And and even yeah. even even after like I'm surprised they don't make like one of these movies, you know, a month because it, it they're hard. Like you can almost list them. Right. It's like Galaxy Quest, Men, Men in Black, Black mm -hmm. Ghostbusters. And Back to the Future, strangely, I'd put in the mix where it's kind of comedy, half comedy, half half uh, yeah. adventure. Heavy then, on heavy on both, but he but yeah. And then there are probably some failures, like my girlfriend was a superhero or whatever. My super ex girlfriend was <laughs> yeah. Ivan yeah. Reitman. 
Which is Ivan Reitman. Evolution. Uh, I like Evolution, Evolution, which is Ivan Reitman too. Has, Evolution, which isn't bad, but just, it's, you know, yeah, there's I something. like it, but I'm not going to say it's great. Yeah. Um, But there's not a ton. Like, I can't list like hundreds of these movies, like an, an action movie. I mean, I guess there's some lesser ones, like lower budget versions mm -hmm. of these things. But, um, but yeah, so it's a, it's always been a, but it's, it's a super important movie to me in that I always wanted to write one of those movies that we just listed. And I never really have gotten the chance because I, they're, they're, you know, they're not your usual movie. They're not, I think they'd actually be really popular on spec. You'd think, right? I, right. I, I've attempted to write these movies, but at least my version, nobody cares about. <laughs> just to be clear, when you say these movies, you mean movies of this type of tone? This tone, this, this, tone. this, okay. this, that the, the thing I just listed, right. which has this weird comedy, I'm going to call it like sci-fi comedy. I'm going to mm. use sci-fi very loosely here. Um, sci-fi fantasy comedy, you know, some kind of supernatural hokum element <laughs> that right. mixes in with the, with the funny, you know? So, um, yeah, anyway, that's uh, my long, long ass answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll try to keep it somewhere in between the two of you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jamie, unlike you, I'm, I'm a little younger. Um, this movie is what got me into Saturday Night Live. Like, I didn't come to it because I'm obviously, I was too young. But this is what gave my lifelong obsession with Saturday Night Live for the next 40 years. I've, I, you know, I've, I haven't missed an episode in like at least 30 years of Saturday Night Live. Wow. Yeah, I don't talk about it much because who do you talk Yeah, about I had anymore? never, never knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a huge Saturday Night Live fan. And um, like when, at that, like I consider Ghostbusters kind of the nexus of that happening because I didn't know who those guys were until mm -hmm. I saw this thing on probably VHS because I was born in 82. <laughs> so mm -hmm. no clue. But to keep it short, there's two franchises that I consider in my childhood that are untouchable, which is Ghostbusters and Ninja Turtles. We've already talked about Ninja Turtles, but those are the two that I played the most. Those are the ones that I had the action figures of. That ruled my entire life. That was yeah. my entire existence until, I don't know, uh, suddenly I noticed girls. You know what I mean? Like That was literally <laughs> all that mattered, those two things. So Ghostbusters is like one of the things holding up my entire consciousness. Um, <laughs> It actually like wow, think, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Ghostbusters is such a pillar in my brain that it actually annoys me. It annoys me we're even talking about it because I'm like, it's such a perfect thing that should be considered perfect that I don't even want people to question it or examine it. I'm like, it's already been decided. It's already history. Don't even talk about it. Don't touch <laughs> it. I like when I'm not talking about it. But when 2016 happened, one of my biggest annoyances was people revisiting it. And hearing their opinions about it actually angered me because the slightest bit of pushback on Ghostbusters, I was like, Ugh, don't say anything about my boy. I love him too much. <laughs> so, yeah, I love this movie a lot. And I've seen it probably more than most movies. Yeah. But here, All right. here's a weird SNL tidbit about me that I realized I've had a recurring dream. You know, you know, most people have that thing where you haven't studied for the test yeah. or something. I have a recurring dream since I was like probably a teenager where I'm 
I'm a cast member of SNL and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> or it's it's a really weird thing. And I still get it to this day. Uh, it, it kind of morphs around. Or I'm a writer on SNL. Right, right. And like I I have like an hour to write my sketch and I can't figure it out. That's my that's my stress dream. Like like that most people get the one. That's my stress yeah, dream. And, and you're naked. No. Um, and I'm naked. Well, that's actually kind of a perfect transition though, Jamie, to who wrote this shit. Right. Like, I think because we can talk about the kind of origin of where this came from. That's right. Because I wrote this. Yeah, Jamie Nash wrote this. I wrote this. Uh, Dan Aykroyd actually took the credit as well as Harold Ramis. Um, <laughs> but I wrote it. No. So <laughs> Aykroyd and Harold, Harold Ramis wrote it. It's the, the origin of it. And I I didn't do the research, but I remember this. I remember enough of it. Maybe you can help me from what you know. I think the origin of this, of course, Dan Aykroyd was a big supernatural UFO conspiracy was, kind of guy. Is. is is he's probably more so now, or yeah, at least he's more, he's more crazy open now, about right? it. Yeah, he's, he's he's dug in deep, and he wrote uh, Ghostbusters kind of a serious version of it first. Like there was a first draft that had, according, to, and I've never read it, even though it's out there. I think there's lots of PDFs you could read of this draft. I think I, I, I'm not positive. But he wrote kind of a serious, more sci-fi version where uh, Ghostbusters were kind of already existed in a future world where they were like plumbers and you just call them up. And there were multiple franchises. They were kind of competing and things like that. And that was his first It's funny draft. we never got there, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like a natural hey, progression. Yeah. We've never gotten there, yeah. I yeah. guess cartoons, but. It, yeah, I, I almost thought that was where they would take it in the kind of even in the sequel that came out a few years back that, you know, everybody went crazy over or whatever. Um, but the, I, I, you know, there was a part of me that thought maybe they'd even go there at that point. That yeah. It would be like in some way, in some lesser way, like maybe there are multiple competing franchises. Um, but yeah, anyway, so uh, there, there was some more serious version. I think when Ivan Reitman got involved, he kind of looked at this and said, yeah, this is a great concept, but this thing's nutty and, you know, it would cost too much money and maybe, and, and I think it was Ivan Reitman's idea to set it in New York, make it a going into business story. And then at some point he suggested bringing Harold Ramis in the two, uh, Dan Aykroyd and, and Harold Ramis kind of co-wrote the drafts that we know and love. There's of course the Eddie Murphy was originally cast in it. Of course, John Belushi was originally cast right. in it as well. I think it was those three that were going to be the, the, the cast. And then as after John Belushi passed, they kind of had to retool it. I think Eddie Murphy got too big or something like that for the movie. So they they kind of changed that character there's, to a lesser character. Yeah, there's conflicting stuff like one, but nothing definitively said. They kind of try to, you know, talk around the issue. But there one one. Uh, report i read said that he had to film beverly hills cop when they were planning on filming uh ghostbusters and so that was officially the the you know the nail in the coffin of him being in this movie um and uh and then there's that of course that i've heard i've heard it it's it's on the movies that made us netflix episode which is great if if anyone listening hasn't seen that it's great check it out um where Ernie Hudson, that role, he, it was still in the script. And he came to set assuming that he was going to have this big role. 
And he he said he even talked about he was in the movie starting on page eight. And when he got to set the first day, they handed him a different script. And yeah. he he was like, what is this? And 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 they were like, well, the studio wanted us to give uh, Bill more more stuff to do. So he was like I, in the script they handed me, I didn't come onto the page until page 68 which is a huge difference. Now he doesn't come into the movie 70 minutes into it. So it's interesting to think about like, where are those where like 20 page, yeah. where are those 20 pages we didn't see, you know, cause he comes in way earlier than that. But he said, I heard him say that like six page 68. I watched um, him talk at a con about this once. And he said pretty much, he was like, he was very understanding about it. Like he doesn't consider it like some kind of insult. He was like, if you understood at the time, what Eddie Murphy meant, I was a nobody. <laughs> He's like, he, he's like the fact that I would, they would give more to make, you know, Vakeman. Man, that's so yeah. interesting. Cause yeah. I read an article last night, entertainment weekly with him where he said he was absolutely devastated. And he was, he was yeah. like, this Maybe is it was terrible. He was like, talking to a crowd. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He seemed fine. <laughs> like he understood that part of it. Yeah. Maybe he meant he understood why it happened, but he yeah, was no, it's just, it's I, interesting all the stories out there and you don't know yeah, what's truth and what's I, yeah i think when you talk a lot like that you got to mix it up sometimes you yeah, get bored of your own story you know right like, mix it up <laughs> also it's a bunch of guys talking about something that happened like 40 years ago so <laughs> you know who knows what well, uh, yeah yeah thanks exactly i think exactly. no but i think he was he was devastated but he, what i saw him say was he understood why Eddie Murphy would be a big change to him, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and just to go along with that, looking at the box office for 1984 mm -hmm. and um, there's one part of this that I find very interesting. I, I, I bet I know why this happens. I'll, I'll explain in a second. So if you look at box office mojo, it has Ghostbusters listed as number one domestically for 1984. Mm -hmm. But I think Beverly Hills Cop is actually might have edged it out it has but anyway i'm just gonna go with box office mojo here for a second ghostbusters temple of doom gremlins karate kid wow now you're gonna like number five though police academy yeah <laughs> hey wow all right, all right. <laughs> uh footloose beverly hills cop search for spock terms of endearment romancing the stone and splash wow wow i like that I do like that. Whenever you read these old <laughs> top 10 lists, I'm like, movies, man. They used to God. be different. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then I was yeah. thinking, like, are there any franchise? But there is Temple of Doom is in there Temple and and a Search for Spock. So you even then, in 84, you had two sequels. And Police Academy. Police Academy. Oh. That, that was one, though, Was that right? the first one, that though? First oh, one. I see. I yeah, see I'm right. saying, like, yeah. even, in, even in 1984, you had two sequels in the top. 10 I see. There. I see. I yeah, see. but um, what's the top ten now? We don't look it up, but I'm sure it's it's just all franchise. The top ten has got to be 100 percent franchise. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's well, this year, who knows what it is? It's probably <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Um, it's probably like Quiet Place, uh, Bond, you know, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's probably a couple weird things, but yeah, I'm sure if you looked at 2019, it's it's sequel, super movie, animated movie, sequel, 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 or something yeah. like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I did, I always like to point out too, is the reason this movie is so well written is I think because Aykroyd and his, <laughs> he's kind of crazy and his writing is crazy and Ramus was the perfect formula to pull him back in. You know what I mean? Like he actually like was, he's, he's like the rain on Dan Aykroyd to keep him 
perfectly in balance. Because <laughs> if not, you get something like a movie I love very much. You get nothing but trouble. Like watch nothing but trouble if you want to see what Ghostbusters might have been like had <laughs> Ramis not had any say. You know what I mean? Like it would have been something that nuts. I'm sure Reitman knew what he was doing when he was like, you know, maybe you could use some help with this. <laughs> right, one. right. You know, <laughs> maybe you need this. You got some great ideas, but you got to kind of rein it in. You need another person. Honestly, yeah. that that makes for a great co-writing team. I've mm-hmm. I've co-written a lot of stuff, and that's kind of when you get the magic when. When there is somebody there to kind of almost force you with the discipline while you're kind of going wild with the ideas, um, that can be a really good combo. Uh, I, I think. feel like this movie without Ramis would have been a lot more mumbo jumbo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, Acro would have went way too deep on that kind of stuff, stuff that no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but would have went deep into. Um, Tobin Spirit Guide. Yeah, we would have got a lot more. But you know what? If Ackroyd wrote a Tobin Spirit Guide, I'd buy a copy and read it. Like, I think it exists. Some, yeah, but it might be a fan written thing. I mean, Ah. I want, I want like Ackroyd to write it himself, (laughs) and it comes with a you know Crystal Head vodka when you buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so on this show, we have once or twice mentioned this book called Save the Cat, I think. Yeah, just kind once, of. Just a few times. Um, Jamie, I think you're sort of familiar with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a talk- polarizing book. By it's the a pol- way. Yeah, right. It's probably like a, lot- a bunch of people just logged off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of hacks over here talking about the Save the Cat. Um, this movie has a pretty incredible Save the Cat beat sheet right guys yeah well um uh blake snyder himself wrote this movie no, right? <laughs> <laughs> with you jamie yeah. yeah no i i i thought we could frame uh this conversation in a save the cat thing so we could take it in order while also kind of talking save the cat a little bit yeah. so in this movie falls into some cool save the cat discussions it it, it pretty much follows there's some debate i'd say about the midpoint And then it does some unconventional things, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just thought it would be a good way to organize. And because this is a movie we want to walk through almost not beat for beat, but section by section. Mm -hmm. And uh, just by framing our conversation and giving each other a chance to talk about certain sections. uh, That's so that's how we're going to try to do it today. So it's going to be different. A little different, just yeah. Slightly, it's really just an organization. So we're gonna we're gonna take you through a long save the cat beat sheet, but in each section, we're gonna go into different aspects that will deviate from save the cat. It's it's just a way to organize our kind of flow. Um, so with that said, why don't we why don't we get started with our save the cat beat sheet? So the save the save the cat beats. There's 15 beats. I'll kind of introduce each one as we go through and I'll do it really briefly because again, it's more an organizing tool and I think you'll catch on. They're pretty simple to understand if you don't already know them. So the first beat is the opening image and the opening image, if you hear it described, it could be anything from a entire teaser, which is how I kind of describe it and save the cat uh, writes for TV a lot. It's almost a teaser or it could literally be an opening image. Uh, I mean, it could be an opening shot. I think in this one, we get we get two different things that you could kind of describe. And, and keep in mind, Save the Cat Beat Sheets, when you do them uh, reverse engineer, I personally don't think that's the best way to use them. I think the best way to use them is to come up with your own ideas and pull your ideas out. It's like an inspirational tool. 
Because mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes things don't fit after they go through post-production or or when Harold Ramis gets his dirty hands on it, <laughs> starts changing things around. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes things don't fit. So I'm not one of these people that think, oh, it, it didn't have the right midpoint. It's a bad movie or something like that. Right. But um, the funny thing is this movie still works, I, I think, with it. So the funny thing about the opening image I find in this movie is it starts with architecture. And I think that's kind of an interesting opening shot that they're they're showing like, you know, those statues outside the library. And they're they're almost like symbolizing like this this built-in ghostly architecture of New York City. I, that always kind of struck me mm-hmm. that it starts yeah. with architecture. And architecture plays a key point in kind of the, the supernatural mythology yeah. of the movie. Literally it's the antenna, right? Um, so Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you could also just describe the opening image as the whole library section. You know, that mm-hmm. whole that whole section from a construction standpoint. Yeah. From a construction standpoint. And so we say the whole section, you mean not just the, you mean the opening or when they actually show up too? Uh, it, you know, it's, it all, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Like I've seen people describe the opening image as of like Raiders, the lost Ark is the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all like, depending on how you get to it. Um, me, I'd probably describe it as um, the part up to the credit sequence. That's how yeah. I probably, yeah, probably yeah. describe this opening opening image. But again, use the tool as you wish. <clears throat> do you guys want to talk about genre here a bit, or do you want to wait until we get into the setup? Uh, no, I think I, mean, I think it's a good time to it's talk a good about time the to genre. Talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So Jamie, it's funny what you were talking about. Um, you were kind of calling this sci-fi, and I don't disagree. But uh, I think for me, like something that doesn't get talked about at least when i hear like i mean we just talked about this movie for like 20 minutes before we actually talked about the the craft of it right um for me this is a horror movie straight up this is a horror comedy um and i think that that often gets it's sort of like the thing that's talked about the least like the scares are scary you know and the the genre aspect like it's always horror first comedy second and uh when when i was trying to uh before we decided how we were gonna organize this this uh episode i was gonna bring up the tone scale jamie um your 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 tone you know your typical tone scale but i couldn't even think of like you said earlier like there weren't many movies like this at this time so like, how would they have even, what, what would have even gone on their list, right? Like of, we talk about the tone scale. You, you want to kind of bounce off that for me? Well, yeah, which, sure. Which Batman is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, t- tone scale is just like trying to find, to, to make a scale of one to 10 and assign each number a certain tone of movie, a certain, you know, how light is it? How dark is it? Is it gritty? Is it funny? Is it silly? Are the stakes real? Is it meant to scare? And if you can find comparison movies to set your tone and kind of create a scale of your own, you just make it up yourself. You can kind of check and balance as you write, whether your movie, your writing falls on the tone of the scale you set. So like Bob said, Batman is the obvious one because there's so many different iterations of Batman. You have the dark, gritty Batman that might be Christopher Nolan. That might be, let's say, an eight or nine. And then you might have Zack Snyder might come down to a seven or something like that, maybe. I don't know. 
and and then Adam West is is a one or a one or and Lego yeah, yeah. Lego, Lego Batman Batman's two or three a two or three yeah so, yeah what are the movies you put in this you're right from the time period. It's really hard. I'd really have to adjust my. Well, they yeah, didn't have that. Like, they didn't have those Batmans. Yeah, so, so yeah, like it's like say? it's sort of it must have been groundbreaking in its well, handling of tone. I think the genius conceit is that what what you said, Jimmy, is that Ivan Reitman. I guess I'm going to give him credit. He probably said, "I'm going to make a horror movie with those guys in it," and that mm-hmm. created a tone mm-hmm. without maybe him knowing exactly without them not even knowing what the tone would be, right? Like, yeah. It kind of presented itself, and as and such. yeah, that's a good way. That's, that's you know what I mean. How, like, how it all grew, you know, was what if, grown about. What if Bill Murray was in a horror movie? As yeah. Bill Murray, <laughs> what does that look like? What does yeah. that look like? And I'm yeah. gonna try to make that. Um, yeah. but like, because the other movies, they the other ba- Ghostbusters, they're they're less horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why. Um, people tend to lean toward this one. Um, because you know it it's it's a ghost movie, right? Like, I mean, the ghosts are scary, and the comedy is always sort of second. Sec, it's 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 there. It has a purpose. It, it's there to relieve the horror tension, and that creates that sense of fun in every one it's, of these scenes. And that usually it, happens with stuff like this, right? Like Men in Black had the same problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It. It. What it really this movie is doing is it's taking like a real horror movie premise and it's throwing goofballs in it. Mm-hmm. So I always say like comedies really most comedies. There are some exceptions, but very few. Either you have a, a real world with goofy people or you have goofy people in a real world. It's usually it's it's rare when you get goofy, goofy. And that's another kind of movie. It's like mm-hmm. it's like one yeah. one or that's the other cheeseburger. Yeah. Yeah. One or the other uh, is the straight man, whether the world's the straight man or the characters are the straight man. That's a good usually, way to say it. Yeah. Usually one one side or the other. And I think this movie, what you're pointing to is the the ghosts the um i mean even the evil ghosts it's like you know you have gozer and zool and they're they're like really serious they don't make jokes you know there's nothing silly about them yeah which is one of the things that the um the leader is sort of serious he just looks yeah he's scared he's yeah yeah ah yeah so yeah. they become funny until the cartoons, right? No one yes. could see me yeah. actually impersonating Slime, yeah, no but that's what I was doing. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I, I think that's that, and that, that's honestly, I think what threw me off when I was a kid watching it. I was like, right. "Is this serious? Wait, these are my right. Saturday Night Live guys that I want to really get into and laugh and be silly." But then it did have things I loved, like the the horror tone and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And then, honestly, if it has anything that threw me off a little bit, certain things like the refrigerator and stuff felt a little sillier than I'd be used mm-hmm. to in a horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Which you open the refrigerator and there's stuff going on in there. <laughs> that part felt a little like them making fun of horror, uh, mm. but the rest of it didn't as much. And I, I remember as a kid, I was always thrown off maybe by the names or, or how he talked about all the mythology and stuff like right. that. Cause it seemed like, um, but that's why I think I graduated to more like, Oh no, that stuff is all serious. It's just kind of goofy people talking about it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah. Also, a lot of this too, um, is not, some of it's not writing, right? Like 
I would say Ghostbusters is also shot like a horror movie, which, mm-hmm. well, yeah. you know, I know it's a, it's a script podcast, but the, it, the aesthetics and the, the aesthetics score yeah. are not goofy. Right. Like yes, the Marshmallow Man looks goofy, but the way he shot and presented is not goofy. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, like there, there's that's how the whole movie looks. But yeah. when I was watching last night, the one place that sometimes violates that because I agree 100. percent It's this grounded reality, and I think New York plays a big part of that. It's a great New York movie. Yeah, great mm-hmm. New York movie. Sometimes the score can get a little silly. Some guy silly. Yeah, plays up the plays up the goof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that that's that's about the only part that I noticed when I was rewatching last night. I was like, sometimes the score is is doing. Let's be funny here. Yeah, and that's not really the writing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. No, but I I thought about. I, no, me neither. Hell no. Yeah, yeah. I know, Bob. We're not going to attack your your baby. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> no, but I thought about doing, but I didn't. And maybe we can do it in a later episode. Sort of instead of a good news, bad news. Um, you know how, how we've how we've broken down sequences and showed the good news, bad news technique and how it's mm-hmm. effective. Uh, like the library sequence, both of them. The, it's like a one-two punch with the setup of uh, you know the librarian down there. And her experience with the ghost mm-hmm. as its own horror scene. And then when the Ghostbusters actually come down there, there's this great back and forth of dread, terror, the, all the horror tools that we talk about in other episodes. Dread, terror, gross out. Yes. Laugh. Dread, terror, gross out. Laugh. Dread, terror, gross out. Laugh. And if you, if you watch it, there's like, there's this rhythm to each of the each of the horror scenes where they're they are every time they're building all that tension using your classic genre techniques and then bam here comes a laugh like you know oh my god here's the books on the thing and it, you know and it's super scary and and Ray and Egon are taking it super serious and it's it's made to feel scary and then here comes Bill Murray saying yes yeah, uh, cuz no human would like ever stack books like this right so um it's just it's that library, that one-two punch of those two library uh, sequences is really like what sets the genre and tone. And, and it's like such a great instructive way to balance horror and comedy, I think. Um, yeah. If you're trying to learn that. I, I think um, Bill Murray almost functions as, you know, for my reference back then, as like a Harrison Ford kind of character in those movies where it can kind of be modern and comment on things like and solo might be able to in mm-hmm. the middle of a more serious action sequence or something there might be a he's like almost yeah. the audience surrogate ghostbuster mm-hmm. yeah because um, ray, ray and egon don't don't see it no they they, they just they would right. just straightforwardly see everything as is <laughs> they don't they don't even see how they're they're silly themselves so yeah yeah, yeah. no it's it's almost like um Harold Ramis's characters like almost like Drax from Guardians. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, it's yeah, like that's a good, yeah. it's kind of a similar character. <laughs> and then uh, Dan Aykroyd's almost like a big kid about everything. Like mm-hmm. there's some there's something He's super jazz about everything, which yeah. is a lot like Galaxy Quest and Tony Shalhoub's character. Right. Well, um... it, it, which which was funny because when you when you said the tone scale, when I was thinking about modern things, I was going to almost put the Marvel movies on the spectrum of mm. this movie. Yeah, because. I think this movie falls more in line with that and with you know uh, Guardians and yeah. and then maybe even go further where where like Thor and Iron Man are in the higher end of the spectrum or something like mm. that and then 
Ghostbusters is somewhere in the middle with Guardians, Dancing with Guardians, mm-hmm. you know, because it's the stakes are just as real in this. Um, the people are just as real, but still there's a certain level of fun to it that we're not totally freaked out or scared b- yeah. about it. We're able to have fun with it and engage. Yeah. 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 And I think that library sequence does a good job of uh, kind of telling the audience that they're always going to be feeling like they're in mortal danger. We're always going to be feeling that for them too, but mm-hmm. most likely they're not going to get hurt um, by the ghost when they actually get attacked by the ghost. Yeah. You, you mentioned something about how the opening scene sets up the ghost logic and lack of. Yeah. I think yeah, it's but... really instructive. It's very much like the, the Grem we talked about in the gremlins episode, like and we talked about it in Groundhog Day, Harold Ramis. The more you explain things, like wh- why things are happening, like how it works, the more it falls apart. And you can like, like microanalyze it and you, while it's happening. If you, the more you describe it. So, C- like we talked, about- movie reviewers love that, don't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They just yeah. start picking it apart. Right. So, like in the Gremlins, you know, there was originally a fourth rule that explained that, like, where they talked about why the Gremlins wouldn't replicate in the snow because it's water still to address the heckler of well, what about all the snow? Right. Right. Um, and then they eventually cut it out because the whole thing fell apart. And just like the original drafts of groundhog day, uh, uh, Bill Murray's character, Phil had pissed off a witch and she cursed him. And there was a whole backstory to why he was trapped in the time loop. And then adding that, it all fell apart because people were analyzing all of her what magic and all these things. And what about the witch? And, and, uh, and so they decided that it was better if they didn't explain the logic of the time loop and how it worked and just, he's trapped in this time loop and he can't get out. And so I think the same thing there, there, there's another instructive uh, example here in ghostbusters where they don't really explain the logic of the ghosts. Like here's, you pretty much learn like they are they, they leave, uh, the ghosts leave ectoplasm. You can right. see them. They can move things sometimes. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes they can be invisible. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's pretty you know, simple, right? Yeah. Like, like it's it's kind of cartoon ghost logic. Yeah. There's there's so little rules that you feel like anything could happen, and it's okay. But um. I'd also argue that they do a good job, since you guys said, like, Vakeman is our doorway into the, the movie, sort of. They do a good job of saying, like, he doesn't understand what Ray and Egon are saying. <laughs> He's a bad scientist. He doesn't understand what they're saying. And we don't need to either. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, what, I, what I do love about this opening sequence is, like, it's him just going along with these two guys. who We don't know how they got hooked up in life. We're just accepting that they are. But I'm, I've always questioned, like, where is his mindset on this going in? He doesn't seem to believe in ghosts. And even when he's presented with it, he's like, okay. <laughs> like, he just kind of goes along with whatever they say, and he doesn't really question the logic that they're giving him or the signs right. that they're, they're right. spouting off. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that helps us go along with it without That's- questioning it. You know? Yeah. Especially since, like, he's, yeah, he's our audience surrogate. Right. He's just like, world. like Egon, what's going on? He tells him and he just goes, okay. There's, and that's like us saying, okay, you know? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's really good. 
Yeah. That goes for the whole movie too, not just the scene. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, so um, I, I and I, I won't hit like all the beats quite as long, but I think some of the early ones I really want to talk about. Then yeah, as man. We go, yeah, as yeah. we go, oh, on, I'll, I'll kind of highlight. So I'm going to kind of mix up setup and theme stated. So mm -hmm. the setup beat, which is the next beat or theme stated, depending. Sometimes people put theme stated ahead. I think Blake Snyder does. Sometimes they put setup. Theme stated beat usually is floats somewhere within the setup. In my opinion, it just floats somewhere. It could be at the first scene of the setup. It could be the middle scene. It kind of floats. Um, so the setup section is usually the section where characters have a stasis equals death, which means the characters have to change. Their life is stuck. They're stuck in a rut. There's some kind of problem with their life. There's something flawed about their lives. Something needs to move on. And the theme stated beat usually comes when somebody calls them on, on their flaw. You know, usually some character will come up and say, you know, one day you have to reckon and being with a, being a pirate with, you know, your life or something. That's what happens in this movie. Right. I was going to say, Jamie, I think we, we talked about this prior. Um, yeah. I think we're going to end up having the same theme because we were both talking about, like, we want to give each other yeah. which theme we think the movie actually has. So, yeah. It's confusing. It is, I think. I, I mean, and after watching this movie a lot, I, you know, I view this as Bill Murray's movie. Yeah. Uh, so right. I nudge him to the front. He gets he gets the love interest. He gets the he kind of gets the arc. I don't know that the two are quite the other two are quite as much as him, um, at least personality wise. So for me, it all comes down to my theme with him, and we can talk about possibilities because it's very debatable. Uh, Bob brought up a. Uh, in a, a video that says there is no theme actually and i brought it yeah the video yeah. i was talking about was by uh patrick willems i'm a big He's fan great. of his yeah you've seen some of his stuff mm -hmm. um he basically he loves this movie it's not an insult it's not a takedown video it's him talking about what the movie is about and he goes through several themes and sort of says how they're all there but they're all half half put together they're not there's not completely a whole he also argues that nobody in this in this movie arcs so that i think you might disagree with him there already jamie right. i sort of agree with him but not in a bad way right. yeah um, you, keep what is what is the theme that you so, think bob so okay so i was gonna say my personal view on where the theme mostly is if i have if i'm with a gun to my head is the the guy that like jamie said is calling him out yes he says, dr vagman we we believe the the college. We believe the purpose of science is to serve mankind. You, however, seem to regard science as some kind of dodge or hustle. And in the end, I think in the end, the movie proves to the audience that science is there to serve mankind, and it isn't some mm -hmm. kind of dodge or hustle. I don't know that the movie shows us that Vakeman learns these things. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. I think the downfall of that maybe because it doesn't really complete that thought with Vakeman. But uh, we learn it. <laughs> yeah. so, so I I I definitely would call that out as the theme stated. Okay, but, so we were thinking the same thing. Yeah, but my take on it is a little more nuanced. And I think okay. he goes from like a con man kind of guy that really is doing things just to get girls and electric shock people in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he's sacrificing his life for the good of New York City. Um, so I think, and I think he does that sort of through Dana and, and, and moving through, you know, 
how he feels about Dana and, and how he's trying to to do things there. But I think he does. I think he does arc in in a sense. He goes from the con man guy in the beginning to somebody actually trying to, you know, sacrifice his own life for the greater good in the end. Uh, when you say it like that, Jamie, <laughs> I don't want to cut you off. You got more. You got more to say on no. it. I, I, I don't disagree it. with you, no. Jamie, but to some degree, I think that the person he was at the beginning would have done the would thing have done the that. I, I think it's just that's who the he Bill was. Murray of it all. I think. Yeah, I, like, I don't know. Joe- I don't know if he would have. I, I you meet him as a pretty selfish guy. Um, yeah, but I mean, se- but selfish in the way that he's like selfish in his own life. I think that guy would still like serve. So- so, I don't know. His community. Jamie, go my, my ahead. take is my take is, and we'll get into this more as it goes, but or we could just talk about it now and skim, <laughs> yeah, yeah, skim yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. As he goes, I mean, he's the guy who comes up with we got to make money out of this. He's like, he's happy. He's like, yeah, we're out of here. He's all about the money and making money mm-hmm. and cash Self, self-involved. Uh, he's tricking Dan Aykroyd's character into uh, you know mortgaging, mortgaging his money. house he's yeah doing all this stuff but by the end he's actually a hero who's willing to call out the mayor and go up in the thing and kill himself for new york city and i think that what you're saying there that's like super that's definitely measurable i don't know if the if the before is measurable you know we talk about the before yeah. and after snapshots yes. the before the is super measurable the only reason i push back on it is because he has to be presented with these things for us to know mm. kind of like you're, like you know what i mean i i, I think that my pro my only problem with it and the only reason i think it's hard is because i think bill murray treats the whole movie like he doesn't belong in it yeah. and that's part yeah. of the joy of bill murray yeah um so he's treating the whole thing like yeah i'm doing a character arc you know or something like that <laughs> So we don't really, <laughs> we don't really buy the character because that's how Bill Murray acts in ninety percent of the movies, and that's what we love about him. He's right. kind of like too cool for the movie, um, and it's kind of a weird thing that Bill only Bill Murray pulls off in the yeah. history of mankind. Um, so he's also the only guy that doesn't get save the cat moments, and you love him anyway. It's like yeah, it's this weird. save the cat moment is I'm going to electric shock a guy and hit a girl and lie when I'm supposed to be doing science experiments. Yeah, he's slimy. It's like, man, um, you know, imagine if they put, I'm trying to think of an actor who we'd hate in doing that. You know, you'd just be like, ooh, I don't like this guy. Can, right. Okay. But can I also say that there's, to some degree, everything you're saying to me reads as, and I, I've thought this before, the the last act of the movie to me feels like all the stuff that he's very willing to go with, it also feels like he's a guy who's finally not bored. Life is pretty boring with him, so he just takes advantage of everything, mm. and he finally has something to do. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it could kind of—you know what I mean? It kind of purpose. Feels like he yeah, has purpose. purpose. Like he—he he just needed a purpose. Finding purpose there for sure. Yeah, he needed a purpose. Is that an arc? I guess. Yeah. I'm just saying he was always open to this. Mm, gotcha. He's not but, that transformed of a person, though. Yeah, I don't really yeah. Feel yeah. like that. I get what you're saying. He did. He does sacrifice his life. But I, um, I just don't feel like he's a there. different person. It's, he's not that changed of who he's going to be. Yeah. The, the, go ahead, Jamie. I, well, ahead, I was going to I was going to say, even if, you know, I'll skip ahead a little bit to the B story. But yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, wait, I wanted to bring up a different arc. OK, oh, go, for um, it. go for it. Yeah. For me, I think everything you guys just said, man, is illuminating to me as someone who's watched this a million times. Uh, I think you're right about the theme stated moment. Like I hadn't really pulled it out like that 
Um, and I think you're right about I I think I think it tracks, man. Right, Jamie. Bingo. bingo. <laughs> um I was going at this like for me, it feels like a sports movie. And they're like the underdog team versus the big versus the big guys. Yes. And that it, it's essentially it's a team arc. Mm-hmm. And and I think they're both there. Um, it's a team arc. It's an underdog disrespected, it's like go, they go, underdog going from people. lack of respect to respectability, respectability. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I every, I wasn't sure before you guys brought up the theme that I think you nailed, I was circling around anti-authority, something to do with anti-authority that, because that's one of his, the, he listed six things and that's one of them. Okay. Uh, like, like. Yes. Like the reason that I bring it up is every one of the every one of the obstacles is an escalated version of authority from the previous one. So first it's Peter Ray and Egon versus the university authority. Second, it's the Ghostbusters versus the private sector. Third, it's the Ghostbusters versus the EPA. Then it's the Ghostbusters versus the New York City Police Department and the New York City government. Then it's the Ghostbusters versus an ancient supernatural god. So at every step of the way, they are up against a level of authority that's bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's got to be something underneath that that's like motivating the, the you know, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd to, to choose those, those types of obstacles and antagonism. It's, it's kind of got... You know, it's like that blue collar, like you guys have already you said, I think, Jimmy, like that blue collar, the whole upholding of the blue collar worker. Yeah. The system, which is a very 80s it, thing. It also has like um, snobs versus slobs. Yeah. Snobs versus. Yeah, it's but it's not yeah. totally. There. It's not fully fleshed out. It's not yeah. Fully fleshed out. It's not yeah, Caddyshack yeah. fleshed out. You right. Know? Yeah. Here's here's what's funny about that, though. I went back to a beat sheet I made in 2008, like right after Save the Cat came out. I did a bunch of beat sheets on my own just to kind of study things before I wrote a movie like this. You know, I I was going into a movie and I did a moral premise for it. And it was using your work for selfish reasons that leads to failure and lack of respect. Working for others, self-sacrifice leads to victory and respect and fame. That was my moral premise. And then the one I did, and then I wrote- Yeah, Yeah, I refined it a little bit. Lying and conning leads to lack of respect. Proving your worth leads to respect and fame or something like that. Earning it. Basically, you have to earn it. You have to do it the the real way. Hard work pays off. Hard work pays off. And I think I I was trying when I did it to capture the team a little more, even though I think Bill Murray is lying and conning. The other guys, uh, they have other ways they have to earn respect because i think they have other challenges themselves like i don't think you know i i think you have one character who just doesn't relate to people and needs bill murray <laughs> to help you know uh, uh, uh what's it um molds fung- fungus i collect mold fungus <laughs> i can't molds, remember spores the... and fungus guys come yeah. on, come on. Yeah, I, I, you're embarrassing I like, me <laughs> i was like i was like i couldn't get the order right i was like yeah I was like no that's not it um so when you have that guy, <laughs> that guy needs to uh, earn it in a different way, or he has to figure out how to claim lack of respect in a different way than Bill Murray does. But they all kind of need each other to figure okay. it out. Okay. Yeah, I think it's there. And Ray, Ray needs to realize that not everyone cares about what he cares about. <laughs> he needs to, that's yeah. how he becomes more human, right? <laughs> He's got to bring himself back. 
Uh, Jamie, we lost your sound. Jamie, you're, oh. you're talking and there's no sound. Yeah, no, I, I mute. And sometimes I decide to mute instead of talk. Um, <laughs> so so anyway, to go to the B story a little bit, and I, I'm not really jumping ahead, but just to talk about character arc. So the B story, I think, is Dana. You, you know, it's, it's Bill Murray's character with Sigourney Weaver. So their relationship. And the first thing she says to him is, which I always love this line when she says, you remind me more of a game, game show, show host. host. I love. I don't know why that line to this day like kills me. There's just something perfect about it. I I think I think the Sigourney Weaver's sophistication in this movie I've always like loved. There's something very that I love about Sigourney Weaver in this movie. Uh, she's very in charge, she, even when she's even when she's getting scared. You know. Absolutely, yeah. she's definitely the adult in the room in, in the entire situation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> So in the middle is it, so she she sees him coming and I don't think she's that charmed with him at mm. first but then toward the midpoint when she accepts a date with him I I think he's kind of earning it again he's not lying and conning he's doing the same thing in the B story where he's earning a respect he's putting in the work he's really saying, caring Are you saying in the B story that the theme stated would be the thing he says at the end of their scene in her apartment when he says, I'll put it, I'll, put, I'll prove my, yes, <laughs> that's right there. So yeah. then he eventually does, right? Then he does. That's yeah. my moral premise, right? You got to okay. prove your worth. You can't lie and con. So first he's lying and conning and kind of making little jokes in the apartment. And ultimately he proves himself to her and he gets, he earns love or whatever, a relationship, just like he does in the, in the real story throughout his arc with science or whatever you want to call it or being a hero i more see it being a hero less yeah, i don't silent. think he cares about science yeah it's, i so i view this yeah. movie as a superhero origin story and i think as we get into it which we might as well now if you don't mind me moving into the next no section, that's yeah. fine um, i just want to say that i love the superhero thing and i love the sports movie thing a lot of both yeah. of those analogies so so to me this movie is structurally most similar to superman the movie and um spider-man the movie the sam raimi movie in some okay. ways all right um because so the catalyst happens they get thrown out of out of their uh their college or whatever and i i see that as the catalyst um and then the debate section i'll is debatable <laughs> it's debatable where it ends uh you and it, honestly there's no right answer it's whatever you think i was but, gonna ask jamie because you've brought up yeah. in and it's it <laughs> i said sports movie the mighty ducks was the first time we talked about this i think it has a double bump catalyst which i had never heard of that mm -hmm. way to art you know to talk about that um until you said it yeah and I think the first catalyst because it's really important is when they have that library ghost the encounter, ectoplasm yeah. yeah, Egon suddenly discovers that they can catch and capture ghosts, which they hadn't done before. And that's sort of like, that's what makes them go like, oh, well, we could do this. It's um, it, it's funny because usually when I see double bump catalysts and double bump catalyst just means there's two beats that are kind of the catalyst, like they both need to happen for the story to mm -hmm. kind of move. Usually when I see them, there's one mundane and one magical, you know, so so it's like. I'm about to lose the house. But well, now I have a superpower. You know, so <laughs> it's the two combined that cause yeah. the thing to happen. So Goonies, and this is that, yeah. Let's say Goonies. It's like we're about to lose the house and we find the map. 
double bump, you know, Damn. and then when there's a thing or some, something like that. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Some people spread that out and make like the break into two, like the supernatural the, or the, vice the, versa. The mundane to come to pair with the supernatural. And yeah. But sometimes that takes away, which is why you need the double bump. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, it's, it's like, it, cause sometimes if you don't have the debate about the supernatural, it takes away. And sometimes you need the debate about the losing the house. Like you got to find other matters before you decide to use your Spider-Man powers or something to save the house, whatever it is. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I think the only reason I don't categorize this one is because they put that one so early. Yeah, it's it feels, really yeah, early. It feels yeah. more like just part of the setup. Like, oh, yeah. they're while they're dealing with this new piece of science, they get thrown out. You yeah. Know? So but I, your point is absolutely valid. It is kind of important. And and some people I could see just cataloging that being the that catalyst. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just so I early mean, structurally. Like, it I almost feels like a catalyst. They were even called. <laughs> yeah. Like for, that's, that's officially their first ghost. Yeah. It's call, like their right? first thing, except for that. Because Ray walks in, he's like, it's happening. It's finally like, he's happening. He's so right? excited. And yeah. this is another technique that I'm a big fan of, and I've talked about before, and really from my TV book is really where I pitch this. But if you can have your setup be a story in motion, you know, so mm -hmm. in my opinion, their story in motion is mm -hmm. the ramifications of the library of the ghost. That's much more fun than watching them sit around and eat breakfast and talk and go to school. You know, so a lot of scripts I read are people sitting around eating breakfast and breakfast saying scene. Yeah, the breakfast scene, which I hate. Like, so <laughs> I would alarm clock at the beginning. And yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I'm always like, I'm always like put a story in there that we jump on board and then have it get interrupted by the catalyst and the break into. So for me, the library story is kind of the story that's starting. It gets interrupted by the you're thrown out of college. Now, what are we going to do? Well, let's take that thing that we found earlier and turn it into a business, which of mm -hmm. course, of course, our Bill Murray character is then pushing to do. <laughs> um, so here's the part I'm not sure about. Where does the break into two happen? Because I could argue a couple things. One, it could be just them in business. Because if we say going into business is kind of the catalyst, and then the break into two is actually them in business. When I watched it last night, I was like, we got one felt like the break into That's, two. Yeah. 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 I think why it's hard. I, I I think it's break. I think that's we got one. Is it because that's when the the true upside down world begins? They are now Ghostbusters. It, the music um, the music starts playing. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 but it also but, feels like it. Like the filmmaking is telling you it's the break. It this is the movie you came to see, which we're gonna get into in a minute. But Jamie, I wanted to bring this up because uh, we've talked about lock in so much and why it isn't so black and white and easy to say that that's the end of act one is because this doesn't really have your traditional lock-in construction. And this is my superhero movie comparison. So think about Superman, the movie or Spider-Man, the movie, like those kind of movies that usually kick off with them. Hey, I'm going to be Superman. And there's really no one goal. It's just or like, one they don't know the villain yet. It's they don't just, know the villain just yet. Stop whatever's coming at me i guess it's mm -hmm. yeah it's almost like we're just going to get an episodic section of them learning to be the hero 
Mm. And that's what this movie does. Or maybe that's, using their powers too, right? Using their powers. Yeah. We're going yeah. to figure it out. We're going to put the costume on. We're going to drive the supercar. We're going to do the thing. We're going to figure it out. That's the thing is. It's them learning to use their powers, All of it. right? Yeah. Everything and, you described. And, and fun, fun and games of, like that usually culminate in like the public, like we're here, we're Superman now, we're Spider-Man now. And then the real story kind of kicks in, the villain kicks mm-hmm. in or whatever, the things get up a notch. This movie has that structure, very similar to those, those movies. And those fun and games of those movies, which we're about to talk about, are super fun. Like uh, Superman the movie, that's my favorite part of that movie is that fun and games was so fun watching that in the theater. Yeah. Spider-Man, the movie, when you got the guy singing the Spider-Man song and J. Jonah Jameson, <laughs> I love that part of the movie. That's like my favorite part of these movies. Same with this movie. I love this part of this movie. I love the fun and games of this movie. The it's montage. Like, you love that montage, the montage, the jokes, the, the first case kind of thing. It's just so much fun with, with all yeah. three of those. Um, yeah. Who's holding you in Superman, right? You know, right, right. right. Who's holding so you? we're all on the same page that the end of Act One. I mean, he's slimy. Is we got you? We got right. one. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, we got now, one. Yeah. Now the only thing I'll point out with that is, is if you're a Save the Cat purist, B story. So the B story is usually when a character that we've either seen before, like Dana, we've seen her before, uh, she shows up kind of more in the hero's life. So we go, aha. This is the B story, <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. connect. And she shows up a little bit before the break in mm-hmm. two, which I think is okay. The way I teach B story is B story sometimes happens before the break into two. And sometimes it happens right after it usually happens right after, but sometimes it happens right before. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. the only part. Yeah. Now, I think some people would argue that Dana showing up, which is technically their first case mm-hmm. could be, but to me, it still feels like that one's like Dana might pay them if she believes them, but she doesn't really believe. Them. <laughs> right, right. You know, it doesn't feel <laughs> well, like they don't help her in the moment. <laughs> they, they don't use the containment unit or the screens yeah, yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. No, they just sent one guy using a thing he doesn't even understand. He's how to like, use. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that brings us to the fun and games and the promise of the premise. Yes. Oh, man. So I'm really excited to just talk about the premise delivery in general. We've yeah. been, what are we? Is this episode 68? 68. It's episode All right. 68. So we've at least, we've probably talked about premise delivery for a hundred hours over the last three years. And um, this movie is a masterclass in premise delivery. And when I'm reading scripts, um, often it's the one thing that people don't get. And what I mean by that is I'll have really great plots, uh, really interesting characters, and they can take a single single scene and the dialogue snappy and there's tons of conflict, internal, external. It does it's got craft galore in these scripts I'll read. But the mom the things that I'm reading are not specific enough to the concept. So I am reading a dramatic scene in a kitchen that could take place really in any movie, right? Instead of here, we have a scene in the kitchen. What does a haunting and it, it's in like a, a kitchen movie called, look like? like? Vampire babies, and, no, that's, <laughs> and it's, it's not, nothing to do with vampire. We're, we're not seeing them like change yeah. a diaper that's filled with blood, <laughs> blood right? Or right. Yeah. like you know, um, 
like you know like i said for instance the kitchen scene i i will read a script uh that's supposed to be called ghostbusters and it'll nothing in the kitchen is haunted it's just uh I wanted to go around and and ask you guys after all this time, like what premise delivery is to you? Like, what do you think it is? Jamie? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, Actually, I probably shouldn't follow Jamie on this one, but I'll do it. Uh, I mean, with me, it's very um, intuitive. So I haven't really thought of the words to put yeah. around it because it's very intuitive, but I, I'll, I'm going to try to put some words around it. It's whatever I see in the trailer, like, the scenes and gags and jokes and excitement and fun or horror or whatever I expect to see in that movie. Like if I made a list after I saw a trailer of the fun things I'm looking forward to, to seeing in that movie, that's what it would be. And similarly with the log line. So if you said, mm-hmm. you know, three former parapsychology professors set up shop as unique ghost removal service, what do I expect in New York City? What do I expect to see in that movie? And, you know, I might start listing things yes. like how they trap ghosts and and uh, a car chase with a ghost or something. You know, I'll, I'll yeah. start listing things. So it's kind of like that whiteboard thing yes. that, that people who are the audience do when they see log lines and they see trailers. They They're having their own internal dialogue of all their expectations of the fun, unique things that they'll uniquely see in that movie that they might not see in another movie. Not as I mean, yeah, definition. mine would just, that would be, that's a perfect answer. Mine would just be more superficial. Like I told you guys, uh, got to deliver on the title straight <laughs> up. I'm, I'm big on titles. I, I think I've made that point on the show a few times. They bust ghosts. I expect to see a lot of it because <laughs> that's what it's called. That's why I didn't like House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> there was at least like there was like twenty corpses. You gotta deliver on what you're promising me. You said the trailer. I'm saying it's even down to the title. Man, The Exorcist. They exercise some better exercise. You better you can't. You can't. If you're gonna put it at the top, you better do it. This movie does. <laughs> I'm gonna get a little more clinical. Go ahead. Go um, because. Uh, just from a from a, a construction standpoint, Jamie, you mentioned it perfect, right? The log line, essentially, like all movies are what if questions, right? Mm-hmm. And everything is born out of this what if question. And basically, the Jamie, you said it perfectly. It's what if parapsychologists, scientists get fired and start their own blue collar ghost pest control business, right? They're exterminators, but they're but for ghosts. Okay, what the hell does that look like? Like premise delivery is. Giving the audience people, places, things, scenarios, and dialogue that they could only ever see in your movie and no other movie. And when you're able to do that, when you focus on that, when you're coming up with your ideas, when you're coming up with your characters, when you're coming up with your props, when you're coming up with your settings, when you focus on like, how can I paint this with the specifics of this premise and make it something that I could only see in New York City when there's a bunch of ghosts and uh, a bunch of scientists who are hunting them. Um, that's when it becomes a story that people want to revisit because they could only get the experience by watching your movie. Like the reason that this movie has stood the test of time is because the whiteboarding, the world building, the people, the places, the things are so unique and interesting. And 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 some like even though it's grounded they captured this this world that like 
only exists in this movie. And so you you want to experience this world over and over again. Right? That's why, like, the costumes, people are still dressing up like the Ghostbusters 40 years later. You know, that's why Dude, they, uh, they have like they have like uh, groups right? Uh, that they regularly meet to do that, man. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't do that with if you don't have the cars and the symbols and the and the tech and all that <laughs> represented on screen. Right. Yeah. For me, it's all about specificity. And I check your bingo cards because I've talked about this many times, yeah. but it's got to be you got to be as specific as possible. Like my number one note is not premise specific enough. I probably write that 50 times in every set of notes I do. It's good, it's entertaining, but it's not premise-specific enough. Can you take the same material and make it more premise-specific? Jimmy, you talked about, I think it was Legally Blonde, I can't remember, but you talked about the action figure thing. Uh, Yeah, When you you create your characters, make them uh, (laughs) visualize. Well, that's an exercise, yeah. That's an exercise, visualize what the action figure would be like. You could say that about not even I mean, just the characters in this movie, everything. Everything in this movie. In this like, movie. Even, the, even the sound design in this movie, like Did, everything. Ter- Terry Rossio used to have, and I think I've mentioned this before, but Terry Rossio used to have a test of concepts. And he said a good concept, you can dress up for, as, and for, for Halloween, you can dress up in the good concept. <laughs> and, and if and, you can't, if nobody would want to dress up as that, then you probably don't have a good concept. But I will say also, this is not genre, this is not specific to like fun movies, right? Like fun and games can also be like a serious drama. Like, sure. you know, like uh, what's, a, what's a recent example of like a serious drama that like has its own set of fun well, and games just i was gonna of- say i mean uh, this isn't a recent example but kramer versus kramer is is you know about divorce you know and right. it's it's yeah. a yeah. father raising a kid uh through it while divorce is going on and right. that's not a fun and games topic it's not right. something i'm gonna dress up for it, uh, uh, this halloween as kramer versus kramer right. but um but it it delivers on all the things we'd expect from a Dustin Hoffman drama about divorce. Right. They do all those same things. They're giving you people, places, things, scenarios, and dialogue that are specific to the Kramer versus Kramer concept and story world. Um, So, yeah. It's just, uh, I, yeah. I don't know why I I pulled Kramer versus Kramer. (laughs) Well, Seinfeld was just added to Netflix, so. (laughs) (laughs) But like, Bob, you've in the, in the past, you've done a good job bouncing off this where you just start going off of, you know, that single what if question. Uh, You can take it, you grab your whiteboard, whatever it is, your, Mm -hmm. your notebook, your app and your phone, whatever it is that you use for idea generation. And you just start asking questions, right? Like, like, yeah. What, what, uh, what would their car look like? What would they use as a car? You know, what would thematically work as a car? Right. How about a car that they get a car that usually has dead people in it, and they and they're there to capture dead dead spirits, uh, right? What would they use? How would they capture them? What would they use? Where do they put right. them when they're done? You know? Yeah. What, what kind of suits exactly. do they wear? They look what like kind of, what's, what's their what's yeah? What's their costume look like? Right. You know, like 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 I here's my favorite one. What does a job interview look like 
when you are interviewing to be a Ghostbuster, you're asked, do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trans mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis. <laughs> like, right. that is so specific, right? Like, like, they took the time and they were like, what what are all these scenarios that we could sh- we could play with that you could only get in well, this movie? if you look at also yeah like you say like they're the ultimate uh this is the ultimate play on like the blue collar job civil servant type thing you've got uh exterminators you've got funeral directors you've got firemen and you take all those disparate things on your whiteboard and you add them you squish them together and they turn into the ghostbusters you know right what I mean? Like, and you just start riffing off of that. Right. We, you start, yeah. But uh, Jimmy and I, we have this term that we kind of invented for this called premise paint, right? Yes. And yeah, you, you have different, it's almost like if you can imagine your palette out there mm-hmm. and you have a little bit of New York City, you have a little bit of like um, blue collar worker, mm-hmm. you have a little bit of their occupation ghost, and you yep. start mixing them together. So you, you might take the most basic trope of the ghost world and then mix it in with some New York City, you know. So what does that look? Like? Yeah, that might get you those uh, the the stone creatures that that show up mm-hmm. later on, or something, or the or, or the the library being a haunted house. You know, you mm-hmm. you paint haunted house with New York City, and you get that library, you know, or something like that. So you just you just mix up the different aspects of your premise, the different colors of your palette, so to speak, and yeah. just by combining two things you usually can come up with a lot of ideas. You get something fresh that you could only get with your concept also, in your world. Yeah. Combining two well-known things, two tropes <laughs> or two things that the average person would actually know what you're talking about, right? That's right. Everyone knows what a hearse is. Everyone knows what a firehouse looks like. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what a fire pole does and why they have it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, I love how you said, like, a library in New York City becomes a haunted house, right? That's that's a that's perfect great, example. Yeah. And like, what is what does an apartment high rise look like in a movie about uh, about Ghostbusters? It becomes the gateway for an ancient ghost god to come through. Like, it's not just an ordinary apartment building. Instead, it's this longstanding cult headquarters, you know, like things like that. Could, so. you, even, could you even put it down to like, what does possession look like in our movie? Instead mm-hmm. of it being like something like The Exorcist, not to keep mentioning The Exorcist, but what if they turn in, what if these giant monster dogs actually consume people <laughs> and that somehow creates the actual possession? <laughs> you know, like you change yeah. it up too. Like, yeah. right, that's whiteboard stuff, right? Yeah, or, absolutely. Or, or like the Rick Moranis character, you have him, like he's a premise people. And you mm-hmm. paint him with a little possession. What does that look what like? What does that look does that like? Look right. like? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So yeah. it's just about Jamie. That's right. The premise palette. And that and that palette has all these different colors. It has genre color. It has setting color. It has character color and their occupation and their skill sets. And it has, you know, all the and and I often read scripts that aren't playing with all those colors. They have them. They know what they are. They've got everything, right? They just, they've got their concept and they've got a great concept. And we've talked about this in the past, Jamie, but they'll have this great concept that you can picture the movie in your head, right? Just like the audience does. And you're like, this is going to be great. And they only have like two scenes that actually deliver on the promise of the premise and play with all those paint colors that we just, those premise paints that we just talked about. Whereas if you do the whiteboarding and you spend enough time on it, you can make the whole movie fun and games, essentially. 
I like, like I'll end it I'll end it on this too. Like yeah, what if move on? What if Godzilla was a marshmallow? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. that just comes from asking questions. They were probably, right. you know, they hit there was that story that they went on this retreat. They probably got high and they were like, What if <laughs> they maybe they were roasted marshmallows? Marshmallow. What if <laughs> Godzilla was made of marshmallows? Yeah, yeah like <laughs> there it is. <laughs> But we we can move on from that. I just thought it, no, we got to talk about the whiteboard in this episode because it's a master class in premise delivery, Ghostbusters. So yeah, yeah. And then, speaking of break into two, this one is a weird one again because it's a superhero thing, where the goal isn't super tangible. It's it's let's be a success in business. There there is kind of a ticking clock on the money. Like uh, they right before I got one. They're eating the Chinese food and they're like, this is the last, this meal is the last of our petty cash. So it shows that this is their last thing. The ones of fun and games, there's not a lot of like obstacles or will they go out of business? It's just kind of a rise up. It's just rise up to the top. After they charge for the Slimer job, we kind of assume 5,000 bucks. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so usually when you're constructing these stories, like the way I suggest you, you go from the break into two, you have the midpoint. And the key is the fun and games should reach this kind of inevitable either victory or failure. Like sometimes it's a failure. Sometimes it's this job isn't going to work. And that's the midpoint. But other times it's like, you know, we did this thing. It's a small victory in the bigger picture. And I think this one kind of reaches that that point. Uh, and I actually go so far as to say, there. well, there's two things I want to talk about. There's there's kind of a moment of grace there when uh, when Bill Murray goes to when he goes to Sigourney and he has that moment with um, after the concert, and he talks to her and he does his little twirl when he gets the dance. And I think that's him earning her respect. Like she's seen what he's done on television. Now he talks to her and he's come up with with some breaks in her case. He's actually put in some work. So he gets that little taste, that little moment of grace where he's like, he earns it with her as well in the B story. Um, if there so was I, no ghost stuff happening, they would just have dated normally from that moment on. That's you know right. What I mean, like if that's nothing right. else happened, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. So some people might peg the midpoint actually as the date. It's like he gets the date, but she's possessed and it takes it up. Um, good news, bad news. It's right a good now. news, bad news. And it could, that could be, again, this is all in the eye of the beholder. I, for whatever reason, my 2008 brain always pegged it as when he gets the date. And that, cause the next scene is kind of the, the, uh, the false victory of it all. It feels like we've arrived, we're done, everything's solved. And the next scene is the EPA guy. It's, yeah. Walter Peck. Right. Yeah. And that seems like a signal to say, oh, this success, this meteoric rise they had in the funny games has its downside. Mm-hmm. And we're about to click into the downside. We're about to, we're about to click into that world where he's he's going to kind of put some tension on them as well as, and, and Jimmy, you can speak to this too, the rising um spirit uh ghostly ticking clock within new yeah yeah because they plant the seed he wants to see the containment unit and you know that's promising a culmination of that unit being put at stake you know and so you know all the ghosts that they just caught all their victories could easily be undone and most likely are are going to be undone 
Yeah. And also, so if I can just interrupt for one second, the one thing about this movie, like we didn't really talk about the, because we're doing this structure, but the why now of it, like the reason they got the original call to the library is because this is all finally happening, right? Like the reason that the ghost show, that ghost shows up in the first place yeah. It's because the antenna is finally pulling in actual. It's very loose as, as very to loose. why now, but there is a description right. of it. And yeah. What I'm trying to say is like it, looking back, like re-engineering it backward in your mind, that is the ticking clock starting. Mm-hmm. And they're slowing it down when we get to the fun and games by capturing yeah. all the ghosts. Right. Like, right. you know, like and Lewis even that. says that they're yeah. prisoners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. When he's possessed, whatever right. his name right. is. Yeah. Like they've slowed it down. Like they've, they've, you know, and then the EPA agent is coming. That's a good point. To, to reopen the, to make the clock start spinning again. Right? Yeah. Like I think we, that's something that's not really expressed in the movie, but if you've seen it a hundred times, you start to realize. It. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a good point. I hadn't yeah. really thought of it until you brought it up. There's like, there's two why nows and, and uh, to, Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong about about where this where this uh, definition, you know, this technique comes from. But David Mamet was was a showrunner on some show on CBS. I can't remember mm. what it was, and he put so, up this. It was a cop show of some. I can't remember yeah, now. Or a but... military show, one of the Something. two. Yeah, the, the details aren't that important. But mm-hmm. he put this memo. He was pissed off at his his writing team, and I'm sure he wasn't very nice about it. Um, but he, there's this famous memo that's out there of David Mamet talking about, and he used this as, as, as for writing scenes. Why should, it, why must a scene happen now and at no other time on the story's timeline will it work? Um, and I think, and we've talked about this on the show. I think you guys agree with me. Like you can use that for the story itself. Um, why does this story have to happen now and no other time in the story world's timeline? And it creates this built-in urgency for the whole story. And Bob, if if ghosts just existed prior to the opening scene, why is there not other Ghostbusters? Why did they start just, why are they starting now instead of figuring this out earlier? Right. Right. And these, there's these little seeds, like I'm sure Bob, because you have an encyclopedic knowledge of this movie, you, you will remember this, but I didn't notice before until we were looking for these talking points, both in the library and in the hotel, the person who's talking to the Ghostbusters mentions that there's been activity, but it's never been like this. Yeah, like they, they, yeah. they describe to the Ghostbusters, like this is, it's never been like this before. So we're getting both scenario, all the scenarios we're being told, like this is bigger than it's ever been. So, and it's motivated to that. Why now you just talked about, right? Like, like they, like before the movie started, it had our level of paranormal activity. No, right, like, normal I hear grounded. Some, like I, yeah, in my in my basement, I hear weird noises every now and then, but right. I can't explain it. But it's escalating because the end of the world yeah. is coming. And Jamie, right. were you about to hit on that? Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I was saying. Uh, by the way, it's David Mamet, the Unit, which is a covert operations team okay. show. But if you <laughs> want to look, up, that's a funny title. It, yeah, if you want to look up <laughs> exactly, if you want to look up that memo, uh, that's what you can look up. Um, no, I was just saying that we slowly edge more and more towards this this thing. But well, as the bad guys close in, comes in, you know, in the next couple sections, uh, it's you know, we get the Twinkie and all, you know, everything <laughs> we get. It, it just we, we see that this is this is really a thing that 
it's it's almost like an environmental disaster, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, it's, of the supernatural proportion. It's treated that way, yeah. 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 Started by the EPA itself. <laughs> Started by the EPA itself. <laughs> so it's debatable where you want to pin the midpoint because there's so many parts. But I, I just kind of, I view that that scene where he gets the date. There's also a, a part where he says, I respect you to her. That's not a joke. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's like the first time he's As not an artist. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, well, when he says, he, I respect but he does make a joke right after it though. He, he does. does. Say, and as a dresser, this is a, and, as a dresser. We're wearing. And, then, and then he, and then he backs <laughs> off of it. Like he yeah. kind of says, yeah, I respect you as an artist, but he kind of, um, he kind of is trying to be a little serious at that time. And then when she asks him out on the date, it's kind of a slight turning point. And then almost immediately after that, we do get to the possession and you know her getting possessed, him him uh, following up with her possession, and things are about to get really bad supernaturally. Uh, and I, I think I think Egon even says like very shortly after that that his reading suggests things are about to get really bad supernaturally. Yeah, really bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> that's also uh, where the uh, conversation between Ray and Winston come in, which I think yes. signals yeah, like the, now the right. characters are starting to realize it's the end of the world. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's my favorite scene in the whole script. I wanted to talk about it with you guys about like the, the craft here. Like it's, 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 it's played straight. There's no jokes until the end to break the tension. Just like all your, all the great scenes in this movie are. Um, And it sort of redefines everything that we saw before. Like it recontextualizes it and says like, Oh shit! Like this is a real event we didn't know about that that were and promises like the culmination that's coming in a serious way, right? Like they they're they're both Using scared. An actual religious. Yeah, note, something that's right? real. Yeah. yeah, right. So I think it's really well done. I think it's like the most important scene in the movie. Um, and like if you take that out, I don't think the 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 third act ha- has the weight that it does. I think this like plants the seed in your mind that the third act is coming in the way that we're going to see it. Yeah. And also uh to say in that scene, I think that really cements too like you guys you said Jamie um Vakeman or one of you said Vakeman was sort of like the audience, but that scene also cements that Winston is truly the like he's kind of the he's more the everyman than Vakeman mm-hmm. will ever be, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he, yeah, he's speaking for the people that view your premise in a different yeah. light. Like when you yeah. talk about ghosts, let's be honest, you can't just separate ghosts from religion all the time right. in people's minds. So it's like the well, movie's actually commenting on what the audience might be thinking too, right? Let's, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Winston showing up in the middle of this movie. Yeah, is one of the more oddball things you'll ever see in a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just strange, right? It's yeah. like it's almost like they're preparing for the second movie or something. <laughs> like, yeah. like if this were a a TV series and up to the midpoint was season one, and this was season two, and we needed some new blood in there to kind of introduce yeah. things, it's it's really odd. And I don't really have any other explanation for it other than it was a product of the rewrites or something, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to get an extra character in there um it's it's strange though it's a strange thing it's really weird and and he's given the last line of the movie i mean yeah Yeah. he's given the cap on everything i don't really have anything to say about it except maybe 
I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for your scripts. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it, the it, only it, time it, it's ever worked or something like this. Um, it, it really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, couldn't think of this movie without him, but yeah, it's, it's very it's, weird. It's strange. I, I could kind of think of this movie without him. Um, I'm not saying it, it hurts it at all. I think it helps it, but I could, I could imagine it just playing without him as well, uh, which is makes but, it all the more weird. Yeah. I, I'd that argue it works. He brings something to the four of them that they didn't have. Like each of them brings something different, and Winston most certainly does, right? Yeah, like he the everyman most, most he, yes. Like he is, yeah, he's the everyman through and through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's it's. He even talks about needing to get his own lawyer. It's you know, it's yeah. like that. The fact though that you survived to the midpoint without an everyman almost tells me you don't need the everyman true, in this that's movie. Also true. You know, uh, it's. It's very strange. Again, it's not a criticism because I I like that he comes in. I think it's kind of fun, but uh, it's weird. It's it's, it's, it's a weird thing. Weird. I, I can't explain it. I got no theories on this one on the Winston. <laughs> Me neither, except for it, it's, how's this? Like you almost needed the thing where like they started their own business and then they needed an employee, and the three of them are kind of the bosses. So you can get lines like "This is not worth eleven five a year." None of them could say that. Right. Only Winston could say it, reminding right. everyone he's on a job. He's a firefighter. Firefighters yeah. risk their lives to go on the job, <laughs> and they right. they were not compensated enough for it. We know that. Right. Now, so he's that kind of character. You know? Most movies would have included that around the break into two. That yeah, it should have been earlier. I'm not, he would have been a, a agree, part of that building the team in the in the right. fun and game section. Yeah. yeah. It's it's strange. I'd almost challenge our listenership of of thousands to come up with You're another right. movie that has anything analogous to this because my my gut says I, it could happen in a superhero movie. Like if you had an see. Avengers movie and you brought somebody on the team or or an X Men movie after the midpoint, I could kind of see it maybe. Yeah, uh, cheeseburgers. I couldn't think of anything. Indie movies do it all the time. Where like you, you know, like I'm sure there's plenty of Coen Brothers stories where this really important character doesn't show up until 50 minutes in, and things that. Do, but but as far as the cheeseburgers, man, like the ones we yeah. talk about, well, the blockbusters. I don't know. Not, not only are we bringing him in, but he's the least famous of the group, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's on the poster, but he comes in late, like in the back half. It's just really odd. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the unique things about this movie. And, and it works. It works I mean, for also, me. I like yeah, it. Yeah. If you watch the episode of, uh, what was it, Movies That Made Us, this movie is an uh, 11th hour miracle, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't really talk about that, but like, yeah, they that's barely true. finished this movie. So there's yeah. a, probably a lot of edits and cutting going on. Right. And I think it comes yeah. back to like that, like I said at the beginning, he was handed a script. He signed and, up yeah, for a right. script where he. He signed up to do a job, literally a job, to where he showed up in the movie on page eight and had this rich backstory. And he got a script that's where he showed up on page 68 and had no backstory and then just said, whatever you want me to believe, I'll believe it, uh, which wasn't the nature of his character when he agreed to do the role. So, yeah, I'm sure it has something to do with that. I, yeah, I mean, them not ha having a non-scientist, too. Yeah, you know it with, with what they're seeing. I don't know. It plays into it. I don't know. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, because <laughs> all th I mean, technically, Vakeman is a scientist, even though he's terrible at it. I mean, <laughs> you never studied. He never studied. Oh. Right. <laughs> well, we were on. Um, uh, I think the bad guys, and I'll, I'll go through guys. this. Yeah. I'll get through this kind of quickly because <clears throat> it's 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 really good. It's 
again, the possession happens. Uh, you know, Peter arrives at Dana's. Uh, there's there's all kinds later on when when they they say like the cougar went nuts at the party, and you know Dana's possessed, and you get all that stuff. Uh, so things are getting worse and worse, uh, and you know skipping down to it, it kind of culminates on on uh, possessed Dana kind of waking up. Possessed uh, Lewis is is walking around the city, and then we hit the Ghostbusters. Uh, get busted by um, the EPA. You know, I, I actually I think that happens right before it. So that's yeah. kind of a dark. Don't forget, right before that, technically speaking, Lewis gets a small arc in that his all his dreams are realized <laughs> while he's possessed. He gets to have sex with Tina, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. True. He technically, even though they're both not of their mind, right, right. Yeah, yeah he has a false victory of his own, right? Uh, without without knowing own. it even happened, like he, you know, yeah. That's how much of a kind of a nerdy loser he is yeah so the so the epa shows up shuts things down that's really my that's what i peg as the all is lost the dark knight of the soul is dana and and lewis you know kind of monsters running around free while the ghostbusters are in jail peter gets briefed uh on dana's building and uh you know it's all that stuff going on they ultimately get to the break into three where they you know the mayor helps them gets them out of lockup and they're free to go save the city after the the penthouse becomes spooks after all i'm skipping over a lot of this i wanted to talk about the the dana's building exposition scene um do you want to this is your classic example of pope in the pool do you want to explain to the listeners what pope in the pool is sure sure so Pope in the Pool uh, is a rule by Blake Snyder that says whenever you have an exposition scene, you need a Pope in the pool. Uh, <laughs> that's it. That's just find, it. put All it right, in a scene. Let's move on to the next pool, point. No, next and, point. <laughs> and there's a Pope in there swimming. So, so every time I write an exposition scene, I always have a Pope in the background <laughs> in the pool. So he talks about some movie that had an expositional scene where there was a Pope swimming in the pool and they were talking about something boring and expositional, but the whole time, the audience was locked on the Pope, like taking his outfit off and swimming right. laps and things like that. Yeah. The Pope in the pool is, is simply putting something like visual or entertaining in the background to mix in with your expositional scenes to keep them exciting and fun. Yeah. It's like, how do you take a scene where we're talking about really boring stuff or really exciting stuff to some in the audience, but it's being, it's it, the words that are being spoken are really hard to follow along right. with. Well, you have them in in a, in a jail cell, and you have a bunch of prisoners with them, who are all sort of like, you know, they're all audience sur- surrogates, and they don't know what the hell's going on. And you also have that conflict of Egon talking about like people who are like evil, and he's really nervous about everyone around him thinking he's talking about them. And society was too sick to survive. And then he yeah, yeah. And so there's that extra right. tension. So it's a great example of how. Um, how to take a scene that instead of just the Ghostbusters sitting around a table talking about this, it's the Ghostbusters sitting around a table in a jail cell um, with a bunch of prisoners with them. Um, and that's like your classic Pope in the pool. I also wanted to bring up, um, and then we can keep, can move on, this 
Jamie, you talk about this all the time, how like the easiest way to make exposition interesting in general is to bury it with a joke. And I think one of the most instructive things this movie does is every single scene where there's exposition, they bury it with a joke. There's, yeah, Egon talking about the scientific reasons why the firehouse is unsuitable for them. Uh, suddenly, Ray slides down with the pole. Hey, this thing still works. Right. And uh, uh, don't cross the streams. Uh, uh, Peter's like, Peter asks why, and, and they tell him a very scientific so reason. That's bad. Oh, okay, that's bad. Important safety tip. Thanks, Thanks Egon. Um, explaining the containment unit, Ray Ray finishes off the containment unit with a little jingle. When the light is green, the trap is clean. Uh, Egon's calculations that you were just talking about, the infamous Twinkie scene, right? He uses the Twinkie to describe the bad stuff that's about to the... That's a big Twinkie. Um, the gatekeeper, Lewis... Lewis now that he's the gatekeeper tells his whole villain's plan to a horse <laughs> and then and then he tells the horse driver that he's gonna burn and he says what an asshole yeah. like every single scene in this movie if you're looking for inspiration for how to make your exposition interesting this is a great example watch every exposition scene in this movie and how they bury the exposition with a joke it's just awesome i loved it that was like my favorite thing upon rewatch of like a, the how how well that's craft i mean that even, is craft even when that's they say writing. when uh egon warns about what's about to go down and in their jail cell and bill murray says yeah you know like he starts thinking somebody's coming <laughs> right <laughs> and, then, good. and then right. when they're talking to the mayor right? right cats and dogs living together mass cats hysteria yeah, yeah right. so that's right. a bit they're burying the exposition with a joke so it's just I got I got really jazzed because I was like, that's crap. Because I don't know. A lot of people talk about this movie and the greatness of the movie, and they don't really talk about the script. Mm -hmm. And I think the that this movie is is just great craft all around. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. No, I agree. Uh, the, so yeah, just to recap, Dark Knight of the Soul, they're still in prison. The the supernatural Armageddon is coming to a crescendo. The break into three, they convince the mayor, the, the mayor trusts them. You know, they were quacks in the beginning that science didn't trust. And now the mayor puts his trust in them to actually save the day. They kind of earned the trust. That's kind of my arc thing coming together. My my theory of Yeah. Uh, they even earned uh, the trust of uh, the religious figure, you know. Even the religious figure. So yeah. the New York City trusts them now. So they've gone from these kind of quacks, jokes people made fun of and rolled their eyes at to people that are actually, they believe there's faith in them. They have faith in that the Ghostbusters are the only thing that can save the day. So then they, of course, there's the finale. It's got a classic uh, five point finale kind of structure. It starts with the gather the team. They kind of get there, the cheering, they get suited up, they arrive, they look up, they're ready to go. Storm the castle. They walk up many steps. I think it's <laughs> such a it, great storming. The they, they survive the. They, they survive the the crumbling building first. They survive yeah. the crumbling right, that's building. That's kind of like a, a early high tower surprise. Yeah, it um, is. It, it's the start of it because they do get up there. They turn on the proton packs, and their initial attacks don't work against this thing's too powerful for them. So to me, that's the high tower surprise. Like our old ways aren't going to work. So they have to dig down deep. And then again, this is me kind of manufacturing my thing. You have a you have Venkman deciding to be sacrificial. He's willing to give up his life for New York City, for the job, 
to to earn the respect to win the day. Uh, and he does something that you is debatable whether he do in the beginning. Uh, I could I can see Bob's point. And they cross the streams. I can see he, your point too. To be fair, yeah. Again, I think the Bill Murray of it throws it off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so they cross the streams, which is a secret weapon that we've talked about in the past. The secret weapon is something that's usually set up in the Chekhov's first gun. Chekhov's gun yeah. set up in the first half, but it's the DS. It's kind of like setting up your Deus Ex Machina. So it's not Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like the Deus Ex cheat code. Uh, I forgot what, that we that this was the I, I yeah it's the secret weapon. There it is. This is the big secret weapon. This is almost our typical example. Yeah, kind of like prototypical. Yeah. The loader and aliens is another one that comes to mind. There's, yeah, there's a yeah. the crane technique in the Karate Kid. The, Whatever the secret the weapon force is. Force field spacesuit in Guardian of the Galaxy Volume Two. And it's premise specific. Yeah. We yeah. could only see it in this movie. That's why it's awesome. Use the force, Luke, to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here's the cross the streams. It works. Marshmallow Man destroyed. Oh, I guess the Hightower surprise I skimmed over is probably really the Stay Pop Marshmallow Man. Is mm -hmm. the big yeah. Too. yeah. Um, that's the big Hightower surprise. That's like the capper to the Hightower surprise. Uh, and then they have to dig down deep, cross the streams, execution of the new plans crossing the streams. Yeah. Kaboom. Closing image. They return to kind of the rabid Ghostbuster loving crowd. Bill gets a kiss from Dana. He's earned it. He's earned a kiss. Um, and they're heroes now. They've gone from quacks to heroes, and that is their arc, which is usually how it's hit in the closing image. So that's my save the cat feature for Ghostbusters. And the only reason I would argue the Bill Murray thing again is that in that scene, even though there's nothing said, he still seems like he's really sucking in the fame. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I mean? Like even though yes, he did just risk his life. He also knew what risking his life meant if it worked. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's a, it's hard. It's a hard argue there. Yeah, it's again, it's it's Bill Murray. I'm sure he does his own thing when you say action. He's probably like, <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. like I'm not going to, you know, Bill, just act serious like you're excited. He's probably doing his own <laughs> trying to make it funny. Bill, Bill, say that you're you're, you're going to go with the plan. And then he says something like, this is a great plan. I'm happy to be a part of it. Let's go. You know, right. like, he's right. being sarcastic when he's probably told to be sincere in that moment. This and is a great plan. You go. Makes it all the better. Yeah. 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 There's it's, a there's a great thing in, in the ending that I wanted to talk about. That's like a really brief also craft is the idea not just of escalation of the story getting bigger as like gradually as we've talked about the importance of like making it a rising thing mm -hmm. and 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 not flat um but there is like a rule of three like repetition escalation of the slime like vankman is grossed out the first time he sees the, the slime then the second time he's fully slimed so we're seeing the same thing, only bigger. And then in the in the climax, the entire city is slimed, except for him. <laughs> He's the only one that's not slimed, which I thought that was just, it's just a great example of how to take like an idea and make it bigger and do the same thing with it, only bigger. Um, and we've seen that in many movies that we've talked about before, but it's a nice little tool to use. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, and the EPA guy gets the slime, that's <laughs> The his biggest, nemesis, yeah. His, his yeah. nemesis gets the most slime possible, <laughs> or shaving cream, depending on how you want to talk about it. That's that's like the. There's probably another word for that. It's kind of like a trope, but we should come up with a word. It's kind of like when Kong, the guy who brought Kong in, gets stepped on. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 
there's something about that. Yeah, there's a bit shot. It is Schadenfreude, really, uh, in some ways. It's some kind of the guy who gets eaten by the T Rex in Lost World. Right, right. Yeah. There's, yeah. That's that's a trope that always lands and always gets a, a big pop from the yeah. audience. Yeah, <laughs> and this is a fun one because that guy didn't die. He just right. covered yeah. in marshmallows. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they they need some comeuppance, some humiliation at yeah, the end of the day. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> My question is, can you eat the marshmallow? Is it like normal? Marshmallow? I know. I've always wondered that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I and that, I think that does bring. Unless you guys have anything else, I think that brings us to the. Yeah, no, we've talked enough about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've... Um, we didn't talk about the song. Let's talk <laughs> at length. Another two hours about the song. Um, do you guys have anything that you want to plug? Um, I have. Okay, uh, our latest feature film, "What Happens Next Will Scare You," is uh, it's a horror comedy. Speaking of horror comedies, um, it is playing at the virtual Salem, since we're doing our, this is our Halloween episode, it is playing at the virtual um, Salem Horror Fest, uh, October 22nd to 31st. So check that out if you're interested. That's all I got. Jamie, got anything? Yeah, Besides, I, look, I, I know you got a book. Uh, <clears throat> no, buy the book, Save the Cat Rights for TV. By the way, signed copies are now available on oh, savethecat.com. Oh, damn. All yeah, right. when, I went, when I went to LA uh, a couple weeks ago, I signed a bunch. Uh, so the thing I was going to plug today, Comedy of Horrors is playing at the Freak Show Horror Film Festival That's in Orlando at 7.30 p.m. on October 30th. So go check it out. I directed a one of the shorts. It's got a Muppet in it. It's got Jimmy Bellinger. You'll love it. Go check it out. That's awesome. Cool. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep plugging the fact that there is a YouTube channel that I mirror everything on, including this show. Thundergrunt podcast. There's a link to it on thundergrunt.com. And other than that, I'm good. You guys are good, yeah. right? Yeah, this was so much fun. Yeah, I'm glad we did this. I can't believe it took 68 episodes to get <laughs> the Ghostbusters, but we got there. So you next... guys taught me the theme in the arc. I didn't. This is great. I mean, now I feel more shaky on it than I ever did. <laughs> no, I know I have illuminated. to watch. Now I have to watch that video about the. the oh yeah, Patrick yeah. Willems. Oh yeah, plug that video. The great Patrick Willems. Uh, it's Ghostbusters. What is it actually about? I think it's called. But uh, he he talks about some of the very similar things we do, but much faster and much less time. <laughs> so. yeah. You guys think we'll do the Ghostbusters Afterlife? I hope so. I'd like. To. I mean, I'd like to. I'm. De- I mean, I'm definitely going to see it. Yeah. I- I'm strangely, I know there's a lot of debate about that movie, like it's not Ghostbustery enough or whatever, but for me, it, it hits like two of my favorite things because it's Spielberg, as we've already established. Amblin-ish, and that's mixing, yeah. It's very Amblin-ish. I know that yeah. Spielberg's not involved, but it has these tropes. It definitely feels like it. Yeah. Uh, and it has the Ghostbusters stuff. And every time I see the trailer, I get super excited yeah, about it. I'm, I'm excited. And, and also, I mean, Jason Reitman is a, it's not, I think there's a lot of calls of nepotism and stuff. And I'm like, the guy made a lot of good movies before he got yeah. here. So he did prove himself. I, yeah. I don't know. Not, and not to, not to open a can of worms, but the, the animated series always showed me there was like more to Ghostbusters than, like, I love the original Ghostbusters, but I think, I think you can expand and go down all different kind of paths with it. And I mm-hmm. sort of feel like that's what, not Jamie, that this is like the animated series. I, but. I'd even argue that Extreme Ghostbusters was really good. The, the cartoon Extreme Ghostbusters. I haven't seen it. 
it's the same basic thing same but it has the, the writing is just as good as the real ghostbusters like that's awesome and i recently watched it now at this age and i was actually entertained you could do so much more with the premise yeah yeah i, I i'm surprised this premise hasn't been stretched out to a much bigger franchise potential than it has over the years. And I guess it's because the original guys just what they wanted to do with it it's versus studios. Bill Murray. Yeah. Yeah, pretty to much. To get him to budge on anything for it's years true. is impossible. So, I mean, I, if it wasn't for him, there would have been a three, a timely three. That, that's so. why I sort of don't mind this new thing. Cause again, I think the concept alone has a lot to do and i'll still love my bill murray i love my bill murray but yeah. if they want to do some other stuff with it i think open it up potential yeah yeah but i i know i'm not in the majority now. well i might be in the majority there's probably a vocal minority that doesn't believe that's true no i i i am excited i actually love every ghostbusters movie so. yeah so most likely then we'll uh, do yeah. it most likely yeah. that'll be a future episode watch out for that yeah We'll do, it's, yeah. we'll it's my most want to see movie that's coming out mine too yeah so there you go i have to think about it but sure <laughs> i'm sorry i think i'm going to be forgetting something but sure uh yeah okay all right thanks for listening yeah thanks bye. for listening thanks bye you've just listened to writer's blockbusters a screenwriting podcast featuring two professionals and another guy available only on thundergrunt Thank you.